0: Universal Pictures presents everything you always wanted to do in high school with everyone you always wanted to do it with. Hey bud, let's party. They're the students of Ridgemont High. Uh
1: Hello and welcome to Flashback, American Historians on Movies. I'm Katie Fapp, a doctoral student in American history at the University of Oxford's Rothermere American Institute, and I'm here to explore American history as seen through the lens of America's most popular history maker, Hollywood. Each episode, I'm joined by another historian as we discuss a movie that covers their own field of expertise. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Charlie Jeffries to discuss Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Amy Heckerling's 1982 teen comedy following a group of teenagers as they experience the highs and lows of high school. Dr. Charlie Jeffries is a historian of sexuality and social movements in the late 20th and early 21st century U.S. and a lecturer in American and Media Studies at the University of Sussex. She is the author of Teenage Dreams, Girlhood Sexualities in the U.S. Culture Wars, which came out last year. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you. Hi.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. I'm so happy that we finally were able to find a time to record and talk about this movie, our first uh, female-directed movie on the podcast as well, a big honor. Um, so finally excited we get to do that. And another of our uh, primary source movies, as I'm kind of terming them. Um, Absolutely. So really exciting stuff to look at. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, welcome to the podcast. And so what is, I guess, as we kind of get started here, maybe to like talk us through your research and then maybe like what your relationship is with Fast Times at Richmond High.
0: Sure. Yeah. So my research uh, specifically in that book, which you just mentioned, is... Um, looking at a history of how adolescent sexuality more broadly but specifically girlhood sexualities have been at the absolute core of so many of the major culture wars that have played out over the late 20th century um, and into the early 21st centuries as well uh, in the U.S. and I had not looked at this film during that research in fact I hadn't seen it before this podcast so I was uh, super excited to get the chance to do that, but the way it sort of the the way that it very much ties in, as you might say, as a as a primary source in that kind of research. Uh, well, first of all, my my reaction when watching it was just again this this kind of understanding of how how exhausted that project could have been for me, and how I initially attempted to make it as an editor once said encyclopedic, which <laughs> was not a compliment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I think um, like something we wish all of our projects could be, right? Just exactly. Everything <laughs> we know into one book. <laughs> yeah. Let
0: me just spend my whole career like documenting, you know, every blow for blow, every single conversation that might have happened about teenagers in that period. But hmm. I think it really showed for me uh, how then and now, you know, children's and young people's media is is so you know so frequently produced and to, at the kind of rate that like sometimes they're not this, actually the subject of as major kind of conversations or uh, debates and battles in the wars as you might expect, which is certainly mm-hmm. as I'm sure we'll get onto something I I really thought about this film. Uh, but it's, it shows certainly in, in relation to my research, how where we might think about the eras of the 1980s in particular um, and others since as being very much dominated by a very, kind of restrictive uh, sensorial right-wing presence uh, kind of looking over and and controlling what young people could access was absolutely there. It's a sort of validation of the kinds of work that was being produced by adults who were sympathetic to and empathetic to young people's experiences and wanted to as much as they could explore that network. So there's something heartening I think about sources like this uh, when we think about, you know, kind of general political atmosphere of the time.
1: Okay. Yeah. And I think this movie particularly, I don't know how much kind of like background reading you did has a really interesting relationship, kind of like empathetic portrayals of teenagers, yeah. which we can get into. Yeah. Um, but that's great. Thank you. So had you heard of this movie before I suggested it, or was it kind of like, cause I know like growing up from here personally, um, I would kind of see riffs on the bikini scene a lot in different like pieces of media. Right. Um, or like, you know, when my parents were watching like a VH1 retrospective on the eighties, people would be like, Oh, the red bikini. And I was like, what is this? Um, yeah. and then I watched it when I was older. Um, but it certainly wasn't the like kind of like omnipresent in the way some of these other kind of like eighties teen blockbusters, like back to the future was.
0: No, sure, no. I, I, I had first heard of it because my, my dad had, mentioned it I think like when I was doing this research initially and Mm. and uh and that's so it was kind of always in my mind as something that had been a cult classic but uh as I mentioned in the in the the kind of interest of trying to restrict how much media I was consuming (laughs) try and jam into the book um I didn't make my way to it but um no it was it was interesting I, I asked him just yesterday, the original you know, oral history source, Ask Your Dad, uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you know, what, what what, did the reception feel like at the time? He said that it was something that young people went to see over and over again. That yeah. and that, that was significant because, you know, having disposable income to go to the movies was not, you know, even to see something once was not mm-hmm. something that, you know, the average family necessarily had. But uh, or the average young person, but that, that it was something seen as like worth saving With. up and going multiple times to see it and that everyone was quoting at each other constantly um and so that was interesting to hear how it felt kind of felt even in the moment
1: yeah and I think we can maybe get into it later um but I think kind of like Amy Heckerling the director has said since then she kind of had the same experience with it where she she, um, I think shortly after the movie came out she went to see a, a screening of it And because her friend was like, do you realize what's happening with your movie? And she was like, no. Um, And she went to just kind of like picked a random theater she was by and she went in and everybody there was like saying the lines before they happened. And this was only a few weeks after it came out. So they had already obviously kind of like soaked it in and internalized it. Um, I must have thought maybe. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it clearly like, struck a nerve with teenagers at the time. Um, but before we get ahead of ourselves, because I feel yeah. like I kind of want to talk about some more stuff of the movie, um, I'm yeah. going to task you with the 60-second plot description. Yeah. Um, so for new listeners, this is when I task each uh, guest to uh, basically walk us through the plot of the movie in 60 seconds or less, so we can kind of like be caught up on what happens, and we can discuss the movie more freely throughout the rest of the episode. So, Charlie, do you understand... The, the terms, the you're up to the yeah. challenge. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> okay, yeah. I think I think this one could be either really easy or deceptively hard. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Ready? Sure. Three, two, one, go.
0: Okay, so I'll start by saying describing the plot is, as you said, a little bit difficult because it is sort of plotless in the best way. It's quite meandering. And so as an overview, it explores the very everyday, very sort of uh, mundane, but also uh, kind of notable moments in a group of teenagers' lives in a middle-class high school at town. And these are a group of teenagers who we see without a lot of adults present, certainly no parents, uh, particularly with a focus on their sexualities and their romantic interests in each other. And so, it's very much an ensemble cast where we get uh, glimpses into the way that uh, the uh, young women and men interact kind of both with each other and in their uh, own spaces with their friends. And in particular, uh, I would say the focus is on... Okay, that's
1: 60 seconds. Oh my <laughs> Right. So Sorry. not the plot
0: even at all.
1: No, but continue, continue, but it is like, it is like, it is, you just, it is such a hangout movie, right? It is yeah. kind of me, like you said, like meandering and go on, um, so on. Yeah. But if you want to continue, please do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I thought 60 seconds was a lot longer than that. Well, uh, it always feels that way. No, sim- simply to say that we have a particular focus on the love life and interests of uh, Stacey Hamilton, who mm. is played by Jennifer Jason Lee and mm-hmm. her best friend, Linda, as they, uh explore the their kind of first forays into sex and dating
1: yeah especially yeah i would say linda sorry not linda um stacy is yeah Mm -hmm. the kind of the core person we follow through and she seems to kind of pop up through the other um characters we see as well so we also follow her brother brad who's a senior and kind of like at the start of the movie is like on top of the world and is like not the manager, but maybe like the most, like, you know, employee of the month at this burger chain and has a girlfriend and he, you know, a car, um, which quickly all falls to pieces. Um, as he kind of <laughs> rests too easily on his laurels, um, yeah. Sean Penn as Jeff Spicoli, who kind of also becomes the breakout star of this movie, yeah. um, and whom they center the um, the marketing around. And also from the sounds of it, um, maybe kind of introduce the idea of this like stoner surfer slacker to the media generally, um. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think one review said like, you know, Beavis and Butthead wouldn't exist without Spicoli. So, wow. <laughs> take that as you will. Yeah. Um and then you also have Mike and Mark who are two kind of friends who are maybe not as popular as Brad. Um but Mike is kind of like um streetwise, kind of scheming. He's like he's always scalping tickets and then Mark is kind of the nerdier maybe like good guy foil to him who's his best friend But yeah Yeah. you see all their foibles (laughs) (laughs) that
0: was uh that was a lot more clear than mine oh no it's fine no I mean (laughs)
1: you got to the meat of it really because it is I mean because it's I mean even the wikipedia um you know page for this like the it has like broken up Mm. the the plot like by the character it you know because there's not really a way to kind of like tell it narratively unless you're like jumping back and forth yeah um and yeah, it's just it is a hangout movie, right? And we start in this mall that's like great with the Go-Go's playing, yeah. which I had forgot that opened the movie. And I was like, oh, yes, the Go-Go's. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we kind of see this like forum of the teenagers, right? And everybody working at the mall and everybody works at the mall. And this is where, apart from the school, kind of like where they interact and talk with each other and so on.
0: Yeah. And I suppose if there is one particular art that stood out to me as, as sort of driving through it in terms of, like, Stacy's dating and love life is that mm-hmm. she, we we open the film realizing that she is extreme, that she's not had sex before and she's keen to change that. That she uh, quote, loses her virginity with a 26 year old visitor to her restaurant yeah. uh, that she works at the mall. Uh, that that doesn't work out and she's somewhat nonplussed and moves on. Uh, she's Briefly wooed by uh, Mark Rat, as he's affectionately called, but that's, he gets too nervous and his friend, you know, really does the dirty on him and and swoops in and uh, they sort of seduce each other in the pool house. That ends, uh, that, or that, you know, encounters a kind of uh, moment of, you know, is this film going to become a morality tale Mm -hmm. Uh, you know where she finds out that she's pregnant she has an abortion in a way that is you know I'm sure we'll unpack you know briefly um, I'm just portrayed in a a very unusual way uh, a kind of -of matter-of-factness and uh, sort of uh, sensibility that we haven't seen not only in other films of the time but since
1: since then yeah right and then
0: and then ultimately ends up Kind of feeling like she's had had this moment of exploration and then starts going steady with, uh, with Rat at the yeah. end. So <laughs> yeah. there's a sort of, uh, I would say that's the kind of the plot that stood out to me in terms of thinking about uh, what, what, what her experience in particular said about the about, uh, girlhoods at the time.
1: Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, yeah, I mean, that's kind of that's the reason why I suggested this movie to you. (laughs) So another really great kind of like movie history podcast. Uh, We must remember this just did a series on the erotic 80s kind of looking at sex through um, 80s movies. And they did an episode on Fast Times and Porky's, which yeah. came out, a movie that came out shortly before this. Um, and I don't want to, like, basically rehash that episode <laughs> of You yeah. Must Remember This. Um, but I just listened to it when I heard you speak about your book. And I thought, you know, hey, this would be a good fit. Um, so, yeah. And I think that is like kind of the strongest narrative. I mean, you kind of have, like, Brad's, like, you know, fall from grace and then Spicoli's... Uh, various uh, fights with his history teacher, yeah. Mr. Hand. Um, that's really kind of like the most narrative glue this movie has. Um, yeah. So, I mean, um, we lo- I logged into the call and you said like, I liked the movie and um, kind yeah. of the narrative. So i like, yeah, how do you, maybe like now that kind of we know the plot a bit more, maybe like kind of talk us through how, or how you saw um, this kind of uh, Stacy and Linda's, like both like their friendship and the way they talk about sex throughout the movie. Because you kind of have this, um Stacy is obviously like keen to explore more and Linda's kind of posturing with her off <laughs> off screen never yeah. seen but often mentioned boyfriend who's a lot older than her um and kind of like teaching you like oh Stacy, I'll teach you how to do all these things yeah. right it's yeah, so cute and... when you realize that
0: he might not exist like, yeah oh. <laughs> I know yeah absolutely I mean I think their friendship and the way they talk is so significant in, in so many ways for kind of thinking about that period um so I mean, one of the things that jumped out to me it almost instantly was a kind of direct comparison between this film and the works of Judy Bloom hmm. in terms of, you know, Judy Bloom is this author, you know, she's still alive today, and her she's she's written prolifically, but what she was most known for is her young adult novels that she was writing in the 70s and um which were very Popular in the '80s, but at the same time, extremely banned. She was the most banned author in America for years on end, and uh, she. Th- and this is over, uh, like Soviet writers, you know, during during the Cold War. So I mean, it just shows you how uh, how dangerous kind of frank material. It was very similar in in kind of tone to mm-hmm. past Times, where and I think someone, I can't remember who, but somebody described to her the reason why she was so pounced upon her work so pounced upon it she shows like two teenagers in love who have sex and no one dies I think yeah. was kind of the quote <laughs> which is like that was, was so offensive is that they aren't morality tales in fact mm-hmm. they are kind of doing the opposite they are normalizing sex yes. in adolescence mm-hmm. and they also discuss yeah they, they 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 discuss the things that go wrong just mm-hmm. like the film does or you know the the things that are difficult or unpleasant but ultimately, there was always community around. As with this film, there's there's this friend. You know, Stacy's not alone, mm-hmm. um, and her brother's there. Right, her brother picked mm-hmm. her up from her abortion. Really yeah. tender moment. Yeah. Um, there's if there are if there were no parents in the film, and the teachers, the authority figures, are really, <laughs> they're quite benevolent. They're kind
1: of the butt of the joke, but exactly. really of the movie. Yeah, they yeah. are like the most comedic caricatured people. Yeah. In this in this film. Yeah. Definitely.
0: And they're and they're ultimately harmless and they really can't control the young people.
1: No, they can't as much as they try. As much
0: <laughs> as they try. And that's also something that the, the books show that the the young that Judy Bloom books show, you know, these mm-hmm. young people are they're very autonomous. They also live with access to either public transport or cars, you know, so they, they're out from parent control. And also they're one of the big things is that the the characters in Bloom's books are often seeking sexual information and education mm. and they're very hungry for information and they're either mm-hmm. getting it misguided or not from their <laughs> friends or they're 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 looking in other books and they're asking their grandmothers it's and that's something that's really key to Stacy and Linda's relationship right this sort yes. of uh information sharing and Linda you know very much kind of postures as the sophisticated knowledgeable one so she's constantly sharing her ideas and experiences with Stacy, and so that was something that struck me not just because of that even being being having that an interest and a desire to learn mm-hmm. whether it's you know you're actually going to have sex soon or not is, is even that was kind of seen as dangerous at the time um hence the massive crackdowns on sex education that would Um, in the the ensuing years in the 1980s yeah Um, so I would say those are those are some of the kind of key things that that struck me about that as well and also that their friendship unlike maybe later films as well um, doesn't show a rift between the the friends over young men Mm -hmm. Uh, there's not jealousy or competition there's Mm -hmm. it's really so supportive and safe
1: yeah definitely that's a good point point. yeah yeah because I mean yeah, I'm kind of blanking on other movies to compare it to right now, besides Juno, but like, yeah. <laughs> um, because we just mentioned it before we started recording. But yeah, there's not, you know, I feel like, yeah, in a lesser movie, maybe there would have been some kind of, you know, fallout between the two, but there's not, they're just kind of supportive, yeah, yeah friendship between the two.
0: Yeah, they're quite believable. And it also, it it's also not about, I thought quite interesting, it's not about finding a husband, right? It's yeah. about gaining experience mm-hmm. for experience's sake which is so radical to portray, you know, even now, I think, mm-hmm. but particularly at the time. And also, it, it, they even kind of mock that a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. it's almost like, you know, <laughs> there, there's a point where I think Ron, the first man that uh, Stacey yes. uh, sleeps with at the beginning of the film,
1: mm-hmm. doesn't
0: call her back. And she's a little bummed about it. And uh, Linda kind of goads her a little bit. It's like, what do, you, what do you want? You want him to come back, propose, have two kids, buy you a house? Like, yeah, that, yeah. that was never going to be the guy. He's the <laughs> guy from the restaurant. Right, so, yeah. So it's like, it's definitely gesture too. is like this, and you know, uh, Stacy's eventual decision to kind of go steady and return to romance might suggest mm-hmm. that, that that narrative, the kind of... Uh, Marriage plot, as it were, sort of hangs over society at that time anyways, Mm -hmm. but certainly that's not what's driving their friendships and their explorations. It's sort of a little mocked, actually.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even think you kind of have on the first day of school montage kind of everybody like coming into school and like parking or whatever um brad sees this one couple who we see throughout the movie who are like always kind of joined at the hips um and he says another year joined at the lips like as they're kissing (laughs) as well so (laughs) yeah yeah the movie does kind of like um mock these more like coupled characters quote unquote um they're kind of backtracking to what you've kind of said in your um first response um, this idea of like teenagers right Mm -hmm. because I think the 80s is such an interesting time for teenagers and I was wondering maybe if you could talk us through like where America was at with teenagers in the 80s and kind of like placing them in relationship to what happened in the 60s and 70s as well Mm -hmm. and how they were reacting to that and
0: yeah definitely I mean I think the thing that really struck me about the film that felt really poignant is that it's kind of like a tipping point that it exists at And if you think about when the film's released in 82, but it's, of Mm -hmm. course, based on Cameron Crowe's observations of going undercover in a high school Mm -hmm. as a high school student. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure of the dates he would have been doing that, but... it's
1: I think it was he graduated, quote-unquote, with a class of 79. Right, okay. So So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and then the book comes out in 81, the film in 82. So if he's looking, he's looking at sort of late 70s, high school Mm -hmm. culture, it's very much a culture that, uh, you know, the 60s and 70s is one where we see, you know, as a direct impact of, you know, more widely shifting U.S. sexual mores that have been, uh, you know, even in the mainstream impacted by the work of the women's movement, the liberation movement, um, the kind of sexual revolution with all of its, you know, question marks and flaws, but certainly that's A a set of social movements from the 60s and 70s that have impacted the way that uh, sex and sexuality can be depicted in kind of mainstream media for a brief moment, and it certainly trickles down to how people's dating practices are. So in the 50s, if you want to go back even further, you have uh, more of an emergence of going steady, which Mm -hmm. is already at that time is seen at you know basically having long term relationships before marriage where it was maybe assumed or understood that sex might occur in those adolescent relationships, uh, even if it wasn't necessarily, you know, really spoken. And so that kind of was starting to normalize, not just a sort of very quick, uh, courtship going into marriage Mm -hmm. with the first person you had that with sure as the sort of understood ideal. And then in the sixties and seventies, we start to see more of a normalization, uh, outside of people who are inhabiting kind of sexually underground movements Mm -hmm. of young people, teenagers, even having, having sex outside of relationships. Right. So not just kind of going steady and then you find someone to marry, but having more uh, casual sex and that being Mm -hmm. more normalized uh, as an experience, if not necessarily embraced or named explicitly by, you know, most adults. And then, The 80, and there is absolutely a backlash to that forming. It's a a part of the uh, understanding of the new right that's really kind of coagulating over the 60s and 70s -hmm. is that this is absolutely, as with so many culture wars, that social movements are um, on the left are having an impact on young people and children. And this is, these are the young, these are, specifically white young people and children are those that are gestured to, explicitly or not, as mm-hmm. uh, those who are going to be negatively impacted by these social movements that are taking U.S. society away from its you know, original the values. Common
1: values. Yeah. right?
0: And so this is something which absolutely builds and it spills over in the 1980s when we have the election of Ronald Reagan. Mm. And While he certainly, as a president, does not achieve everything he wants to in terms of restricting abortion for most people during that period, uh, teenagers absolutely have a lot of their uh, rights restricted because it is a lot easier to convince a wider public that young people's sexual uh, freedom is something we might be concerned about than Mm -hmm. adults. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you see... uh, Proliferation of very restrictive uh, policy and legal changes aimed at uh, the sexual and reproductive lives of young people. And so that's very much the climate that this film is, and and the book before it, we're sort of Mm -hmm. maybe encapsulating as a source the lived experience. If we're considering
1: this as a primary source, yeah.
0: Absolutely, of of young people, uh, but not the reaction that was about to kind of bubble over into because like, this kind of comes
1: yeah. it's like right on the precipice of that mm-hmm. isn't it kind of like yeah I don't want to say like oh it couldn't be made nowadays but it's kind of yeah you do wonder like kind of deeper into the decade whether this, yeah her kind of even oh. more um uh just yeah the way the movie really normalizes the abortion right it's like not it's not made of a big thing we don't really learn she's pregnant until she tells um mark herself or sorry not mark um their names are too similar. Oh, no, it is no Mike, Mike, Mike. and Mark, yeah, Mike, <laughs> Mike. <It's Simone. laughs> yes, Damone. Yeah. Until um, she tells Mike herself and then, you know, you kind of see him, she's like, can you pay half? And he's like, yeah. yeah. Um, and you see him scrambling for the money. And then he ends up a not giving her half and failing to pick her up and drive her to the clinic. Yeah. Um, so Brad, her brother kind of unknowingly gives her a ride and then sees her go across the street and then is waiting for her when she gets out. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's, it's very normal. And I guess the so this uh, heckling has said like um, there are different parts of the movie that, you know, the, the studio did ask her to cut. Um, and it sounds like most of it was there was a brief view of. So in the pool house, when yeah. um, Mike and Stacey do kind of like hook up, um, you see her breasts. And in the original cut, you also saw his private parts um, and also a more extended kind of abortion sequence where you see kind of. Stacy reacting to the procedure itself which they ended up cutting from the movie and I don't think I think they put in the pool house sequence back in with this new release I don't think they've put in the extended abortion sequence um but it's interesting so there was kind of like a hesitancy towards those things but not I guess like the whole thing in its in and of itself you know
0: yeah and I I think yeah a a few things on that I mean I think to, to pick up on your first point I think that there's no way this film could have come out four or five years later because by 1986, you know, another uh, aspect of the, the, the kind of crackdown on adolescent sex during this period as an emblem of everything that, you know, the social movements of the 60s and 70s had, had wrought is a, an encourage, is a crackdown on pornography and obscenity, mm. uh, in, you know, in which, you know, sex education, comprehensive sex education was lumped in with that, but also any depictions of adolescent sex and or anything even adjacent to that so a much much farther things from sex scenes of teenagers was policed in that way so i can't imagine right.
1: like um, this yeah like
0: in, yeah. Ni- in 1986 as a result of years of research into this the uh there's the meese commission uh, named after reagan's attorney general edwin meese mm-hmm. published the meese report which is mm-hmm. a giant like 900 page review of pornography in American culture and why there needs to be a massive crackdown specifically because there's this belief that it's reaching children and there's Mm -hmm. a direct line in there many lines which gesture to we're not just talking explicitly about what you might think of as pornography we're talking Mm -hmm. about children's games children's Mm tv sex education so I mean there's there's no way that the kind of culture warriors who were putting that together wouldn't have this is that um so that's to that point but you know what you mentioned about the scenes that were cut I think it's maybe understandable that even then there's a sense of we can talk about abortion but we we need to be careful about showing Mm. any kind of discomfort with it it's like there's more there's more of an an audience for sex scenes which could be uncomfortable in a kind of not in a non-violent way as it's shown in the film in a Mm -hmm. you know uh this this just awkward way yeah but showing abortion experiences that were not pleasant is something that is still so fraught for uh you know abortion rights campaigners because we you know we have to be so careful still mm-hmm. about what we're up against that it's impossible <laughs> to even name like a complexity of an experience which So there's that. But in terms of the male nudity, I was really interested. I learned that also and preparing for today's podcast. And I was I found that actually quite heartening in a weird way to see that that there was a shot previously of male nudity Mm -hmm. that was taken out and heartening that's been added back in. Because that Mm -hmm. was my one. My, you know, one of the kind of critiques of the film or, Mm -hmm. or kind of discomforts around the film, which I suppose I was trying to contextualize at the time with how. Uh, despite having, you know, a young woman director, yeah. how, uh, how a studio might think about the... Why they want to
1: produce film. this film, right? Yeah,
0: Exactly, and the particular appetite in the uh, late 70s, uh, early 80s for, uh, you know, a real obsessive focus on the bodies of young, white or perceived white, thin, all-American girls. Like, this kind of beauty and sexual standard is, is very present in the visual culture of the time so it, it, there was this kind of discomfort of like oh, of course it's only the girls who are kind naked of, or near naked and uh, mm-hmm. like there is that feeling of I can't divorce the uh not being able to divorce the kind of freedom that the girl characters have in the film with the kind of viewership the, of the time the gaze and,
1: the camera or yeah exactly yeah.
0: and and the reception right the kind of the the ways that young women's bodies like were uh so kind of obsessively you know not that much has changed in that regard but you know focused on like the, by the media and um, yeah so I thought that was interesting to hear that actually yeah heckling had intended for everyone to be vulnerable and is right and that was so that was which is even more you know makes me think of, of her and that film is even more kind of rad really
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, I yeah, I think it's it's telling that kind of like this. I mean, obviously, this movie kind of exists in like a cult mindset um, amongst moviegoers, uh, but the fact that its kind of most notorious scene is the one where the the, the girl is like taking off her bikini top, right? It is right. like this kind of like overly sexual, and you know, t- the movie plays it off for laughs, right? Like it, it is a fantasy of this male character, Brad. Um, and then he is like caught thinking about it by Phoebe. True. He's um,
0: sexually humiliated. She yeah, yeah. In and she looks repulsed. Right? <laughs> yeah. She's like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> it couldn't be further from the fantasy. She's like, I would never. You know?
1: Yeah. <laughs> like- and it's like, and I think Heckerling does a great job of kind of like cutting between like what he is imagining is in head to yeah. her actually jumping into the pool and like actually getting out of the pool. Like she's kind of like hunched, you know, it's yeah, not at all so what true. he's imagining. Um, but of course, true. like the, the fantasy is the thing that lives on. Yeah. Um, right yeah. and i even so, I,
0: I rented the film on youtube which is how i mm. how i accessed it and when i went to type it in the first auto like auto response is pool mm-hmm. scene and i was like yeah. oh boy <laughs> all right, all right. You're like what am i getting into <laughs> yeah and um on that i just wanted to say as well that that uh while these two women that the two young actors names i hadn't seen mentioned too much in kind of when I was doing research on this particular moment of mm-hmm. visual culture and there was uh, in famously in addition to the kind of right wing obscenity or there's also a feminist pornography right uh,
1: campaign anti yeah, pornography campaign Yeah, been
0: exactly that, that's burgeoning during this time and and one of the in the archives there was whole folders in some of the collections on coverage of Jodie Foster and of Brooke Shields
1: interesting okay Uh,
0: because and it was it was so much that's was jody
1: taxi driver or was it
0: yeah okay and uh and and just her life just just cover just paparazzi or whatever it might have been thought of as at the time tabloid obsession Mm -hmm. with her dating life if she was seen within a meter of a young man you know commentary on what had happened yeah Yeah. shots of her in uh you know just being caught constantly and Mm. Brooke Shields the same um right and so it's interesting because like I I was certainly the way that those young women were uh and I actually haven't seen the new documentary that came out about Brooke Shields I think oh that's right yeah pretty baby about her first role she plays like a a, a
1: the Blue Lagoon worker yeah oh no that's right yeah I think so um. So. But yeah. Look, yeah. So very <laughs> yes, much that came out on Netflix recently, right? Yes, Maybe I haven't much, seen that yeah. yet. But okay.
0: it's Again, you know, we're kind of revisiting these historical moments where, right? What we might have thought of as like, kind of moments of girlhood empowerment.
1: Yes, Pretty Baby is the name of the documentary. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and so I thought the way that the two young women could be stylized or caught or taken out of context in the kind of YouTube pool scene clip or mm-hmm. or, or whatnot um very much speaks to the kind of gaze on uh young women particularly young white or assumed white women uh, at the time um and actually weirdly like Jodie Foster and Brooke Shields both have like sort of one degree of separation from the film
1: really yeah okay. so what I saw it?
0: I saw that Jodie Foster was considered for the role of Stacy. okay and at the end in the last last uh scenes where they're kind of showing where they're at now that kind of tongue-in-cheek yeah yeah. um uh Jeff Spicoli is it says to have saved Brookfields from drowning (laughs) that's right yeah (laughs) (laughs) which is like is there you know that's the kind of don't like can you believe it this absolute lapsedadaisical stoner saved America's sweetheart Uh uh-huh so it's I just thought that was
1: interesting that it's kind of there's she is invoked in the film like she's really present over it yeah 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 yeah, and then he blows what at the rewards money on what hiring the Rolling Stones to play a party, his birthday party <laughs> or something.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um yeah, definitely. So oh yeah, so I guess kind of like we're talking like kind of like largely here about like the teenagers and the way this film kind of has like maybe what we would consider a more realistic or um normal approach to teenagers. Um and I thought maybe we could talk about like this so both we would talking about the film like as a source for teenage sexuality in the 80s but then also how like it's the source itself because it's a really fascinating instance um and we've kind of talked about it briefly already but so Cameron Crowe wrote this film um this is Cameron Crowe future director of Almost Famous Jerry Maguire um Say Anything I think is his first uh directed movie um and but before that and this is what Almost Famous is based on Cameron Crowe is this kind of like wonder kid Um, he graduates school when he's 15 and then like almost famous, you know, kind of shows, he follows around all these like bands in the late 1970s and covers them as a reporter for Rolling Stone or is it Cream? I think it's Rolling Stone, but he also writes for Cream. yeah. 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 Um, and has this like totally crazy life as a teenager following these rock and roll bands. And then he finishes that because Rolling Stone moves back to New York or not back to New York, but they moved to New York. And he's like, what do I do next? And he has the idea to go undercover and be a student in a high school to see what teenagers are like and kind of write something about that, which is, I read that and I was like, oh, so it's like the movie Never Been Kissed. Like, that was kind of like my approach to it. I didn't realize anybody had ever actually done that. Um, (laughs) But the book sounds really interesting. And I think Crow, like, too. I think Crow kind of becomes an empathetic filmmaker and I think that really, I mean, it comes through in the movie, and it sounds like it came through in his time pretending to be a seventeen-year-old as well. Yeah. Um. And he was twenty-two when he did this. I don't. I'm still kind of like, I'm like, this is a little weird. Like, I'm suspect. I'm suspicious of the the, the principal who to this. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: <laughs> of being undercover with children. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> probably wouldn't fly now. No. But um. Yeah. But, yeah um and, he, and so in the introduction to the book which is notoriously hard to find but you can find it on the internet archive and check it out if you're interested I instead will. of dropping like a thousand dollars for a copy because it hasn't been in print since the 1980s i didn't know um, that actually
0: i didn't know it was so hard to come by but yeah yeah he's people as
1: a, yeah as a, as a source and of Well, i was looking for and totally. then i found it like 10 minutes before we started the <laughs> record of course um uh, but yeah, so it's he's never reissued it because he feels like it would be unfair to the kids he talks about. I mean, you know, he so it's called and the book is called Fast Times at Ridgemont High, uh, a true story. And you're right, it came out in 1981 and is a like, quickly option for the movie. Uh, but in the introduction, he says, for seven years, I wrote articles for a youth culture magazine. And perhaps not a day went by when this term wasn't used the kids Mm. editors assigned certain articles for the kids music and film executives were constantly discussing whether a product appealed to the kids rock stars spoke of commercial concessions made for the kids (laughs) kids were discussed as if they were some enormous whale to be harpooned and brought to shore. So he's approaching it very much as like trying to actually dissect what the kids quote unquote, like who they were, what they were interested in and like what, you know, kind of their actual inner personality. Um, and it sounds like the book does that uh, to an extent because he does, he did like kind of befriend everyone. Yeah. Um, and I think the principal and five teachers knew that he was, in fact, 22. Um, he changed his name. He moved back in with his parents for the year. And over the course as well, he developed or he told three people that he was kind of an undercover reporter as it was. Um, and they were essentially Linda, Stacy, and Mike. Uh, or that they're analogs or they have the same names of the book as the movie, but they have different names in real life, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, that's really, I think it's really interesting thinking about, yeah, the, uh, the making of the source being source material too, in this instance, it is so fascinating. There's, it's not just a film that is, you know, optioned by movie execs and like happens to speak to teenagers. It's very much more than most fiction could kind of containing the voices and ideas of of teenagers right through of course Crow's kind of mouthpiece and that is what feels I think so kind of arresting about it as a source is that uh, that and I think what spoke to young people so the kids so successfully (laughs) at the Uh time Um, but I also love that Crow was needling at uh, this commodification of teenagers which has you know, existed in particular in the, from the post-war period on, mm-hmm. where you start to get adolescence and teenagehood—the
1: concept of a teenager, yeah,
0: yes, like—and and as that's happening, all commercialized just as much as it is socialized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I think the fact that Crow, sort of as he heads out of his own adolescence, is is kind of feeling that tension between being one of the kids and being someone who might be there to exploit the kids sort of middle class kids buying power is yeah. you know trying 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 to sort of grasp that empathy for from y- what young people are thinking and feeling at, at that particular historical moment so i think there's something cool about that if even if i do still have questions about the research i think yeah <laughs> um but i uh but i also think there's something uh thinking about heckerling the, yeah. the actor in relation mm-hmm. to that because she was only 27 when she directed it and it was her first feature yeah and apparently, I, I read that her her first short film that she made in mm-hmm. in grad school or uh, film, yeah, film school. Yeah, film school. Yeah, the
1: AFI uh, the kind of school they have in yeah, LA. Yeah, in
0: LA was, I think it's called Getting It Over With. And it's yes. about a young woman
1: seeking to lose her virginity.
0: Mm-hmm. And then this is her first project, which, again, kind of gives her this chance to explore this feminist treatment of, uh, or this very sex-positive treatment of, of of that. Um, but also I think something about it's very significant that it's a young writer and a young director both performing the script and directing mm-hmm. the actors. I think if you think about the actors were young some of them a bit older than others is as, as often the case. Yeah. But I think Jennifer Jason Leigh was only 19. Yeah. So they're, they're all young people making this film together. Yes mm-hmm. there's some age difference but not the degree that might be standard for a studio film um, of this era or later and thinking about what trust might have come out of that, of having another Mm. young woman around for these scenes or this kind of, that kind of directing relationship. Yeah. But also it was interesting because it struck me as, Oh, this is an early history then of young women, still young women who have a kind of maybe still quite a live memory of Mm. what it's like to be a teenager making media for teenage girls mm-hmm. which is something that you see really clearly in the 90s girl culture where mm. things like from but the underground cultures of riot girl where you know the, the main riot girl bands in that sort of feminist
1: musical movement
0: were some of them in their 20s even 30s but they were kind of characterizing themselves as girls including themselves in the right, kind of
1: like there's like girl gang right or kind of like a group yeah. of girls yeah
0: yeah and also making media for and about adolescence and right. about and and then you see that in the mainstream uh girl cultures as well, mm-hmm. including, you know, the proliferation of magazines like Sassy and Bust and Bitch, which are all tagged as girl culture. They're made by women in their twenties and their twenties and their thirties, but they're mm-hmm. trying to speak directly to like uh a sort of stretchy girlhood. Teenagers, teenagers or, yeah. kind of, early, yeah. Okay, yeah. So I just, it was interesting because I, I really associate that being, I know that has a longer history, but it's so much more obvious in the 90s. And it was nice to see this as maybe like a little predecessor of a kind of young people, and particularly, you know, uh, you know Heckerling, mm-hmm. being a slightly older, slightly more mobile with more resources, mm-hmm. more, you know, more of a platform kind of trying to represent and speak to teenagers. It's nice seeing that as part of
1: that. Right. And then of course, if you kind of look at the long arc of Heckerling's career as well, um, this is comes out and it does really well. And they kind of say like, do whatever you want. And she does a movie called Johnny Dangerously, which I think is like an ode to 1930s gangster movies. Yeah. Does not go as well. Um, And then she does a few look who's talking movies. And then she does (laughs) Clueless, which like is like, again, like 10 years later, another kind of ode to a, you know kind of this spe- specifically like southern Californian girlhood but um an upper middle class like girlhood but still like kind of again like as iconic and as yeah. like yeah you know kind of women being amongst themselves and living yeah. their lives
0: yeah yeah and characterizing another uh teen moment i mean idealized scene yeah. moment sure you know but um it is interesting i didn't i didn't realize until i started looking at this film that he was the director of clueless as well and that yeah.
1: made so much sense i thought And she also adapts that from Emma. So she's like kind of doing the adaptation of that herself. Yeah. Right. Um, So it's a nice little like full circle moment for her. And then her career kind of goes awry. Not like in a bad way. Just I can kind of think in a way where I think more and more you kind of recognize how lamentable it is. That we've kind of let um, different female filmmakers careers fall by the wayside. Either because they kind of like take a misstep quote unquote. Or people aren't interested in distributing their films for... Various reasons, um, yeah. but and being yeah.
0: pigeonholed, I think she also. I read that too, somewhere, yeah, right, that she she kept being seen as the kind of uh girl buddy comedy virginity loss plot line person, and she mm-hmm. was. And, and that's the thing, as well, is why it's like you know, making youth media while you're young is so important because like there's a time where maybe maybe you feel less able to speak to that or less desiring to right. speak to that, and people you know, maybe still want you to talk about it. And she's like, I would like to make something else now, please. Yeah. Um, so that was interesting too, right? Just that she starts to get, and and, and how much that's kind of, uh, yeah, if that, if that it shows how that scene is separate from other kinds of genres and film, sort of in a niche of, of um, creativity as, rather than being a part of everyday life or a part of someone's, you know, wider uh, dreams and desires.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: but yeah I mean I think it's um it's interesting to think about this film and Clueless as being I guess what they share with you know the the John Hughes movies even though they're much yes, more that too. kind of know. and
1: that's kind of like a skipping stone between the two isn't it yeah yes
0: absolutely of the much more uh I actually haven't seen that many of those surprisingly but I think you know more chased more kind of glossed over I think even with even though uh, Clueless and and Fast Times are both grittier. I think it's um, there's something important about who an idealized adolescence is is kind of protected for. I think particularly, partic- sure. particularly you know much more so Fast Times than than Clueless. But I think the it really the, the whiteness or perceived whiteness of of the main characters really stands out in that you know, particularly for thinking about girlhood here, this, I already mentioned the kind of fascination and like uh, celebration in terms of kind of beauty standard or like object of desire mm-hmm. of the very young, uh, young white woman or, or white perceived woman. But the kind of flip side of that is that this is also the kind of young woman that is most, that, that Americans are most, uh, who are, involved in these kind of social panics around uh, sex education and uh, most notably actually in the seventies and eighties teen pregnancy are Mm. so concerned about because there is this so-called epidemic as it was called of teen pregnancy in the 1970s and 1980s and the the increased amount of pregnancies that uh you know, those who were expressing panic about it were worried about was the number, the rising numbers of young white women who were getting pregnant.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Actually, most of these pregnancies from, you know, the data at the time were, or more than ever before, were, um, you know, ultimately culminating in abortion. But it was, which was, you know, a a sort of the furore over that in and of its own. But it Mm -hmm. was the fact that young white women were, uh, documented as having starting to have sex earlier over this period and mm-hmm. have more pregnancies during this period is so shocking to you know uh, these various kind of conservative forces is mm-hmm. because it was perceived as a racialized um, experience of youth to have a uh, pregnancy outside of marriage or to have okay. sex earlier that was very much kind of demonized and mm-hmm. racialized and seen as something associated with young
1: black or um, latinx okay. like the non-white groups yeah
0: yeah so there's something both about the the freedom of these characters to have these experiences um on screen which would both which which would be so different if they were young women of color i mm-hmm. think or, or just wouldn't have been um yeah i think i think it's it's something that the these are the young women who are both kind of given that platform in in media treatments to have it mm-hmm. be a kind of free uh and harmless experience mm-hmm. but all at the same time it's perpetuating it, these the these same young women would uh-huh. cause so much scandal and so much uproar because mm-hmm. it's young white women's purity which is the focus of so many concern yeah Yeah. and 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 specifically uh the the pregnancy that's Mm -hmm. comes up it becomes
1: kind of the focus of the culture war
0: yeah you can't overemphasize how much pregnancy uh teen pregnancy was one of the kind of biggest topics of um social concern in the 70s and 80s um so I thought that was you know that really stood out to me
1: yeah and then yeah, it's, uh, it's almost such like such a non-issue in the movie, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's a minor thing, um, and you know, we kind of, and it's you know, you you kind of you were talking about like kind of the um, uh, the fears about it be, be the movie kind of turning into a morality tale, right? Which yeah. kind of comes from our um, this uh, Hayes Code era of filmmaking, right, where there are kind of like certain rules that films could do or uh, what you could show on screens um, out of Hollywood, you know, kind of self-policing um, in, in order to avoid censorship. Um yeah. and in this kind of era of Hollywood filmmaking, like if a woman does something that is, you know, outside the confines of acceptable behavior, then she must be punished, right? So yeah. she either dies or she has to be redeemed in some way, like end in yeah. marriage, right? Yeah. That doesn't happen in this movie. Um uh, Stacy doesn't really, she, but she doesn't really face any consequences, right? It's very empathetic to her. Yeah. DeBone is the person who gets the biggest comeuppance. Yeah. Um, because Linda, as she, Linda, you know, kind of hears it and she's like, uh, the, the line I wrote down is like, Stacy, he's not a guy, he's a little prick. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, which is like, <laughs> and I found that, it, so like when I was kind of watching it, I mean, I had seen this before, but it had been a few years. Um, and I had remembered that it was Brad who kind of got revenge. Mm. on Damone for his little sister but and then you know in the movie she's he's like who's the guy and she's like I'm not going to tell you and he's like that's fine and I was like oh yeah um and then she tells Stacy and then uh I was like or Linda and I was like oh like it's Linda who does this and she writes it on his car on his locker and then he's kind of the butt of the joke yeah and as somebody who is like scalping tickets and really depends on his like social credibility that's ruined yeah 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 so his whole little scheme is you know blown to smithereens
0: yeah and de- definitely yeah and even um the yeah that, that little feminist revenge moment is is great but even so it's quite like there's no villains right yeah in the film like so even though he does it is awful that he abandons her without communicating it you you do you see him like, he's not you evil. see why Like he's trying you see to, why he tries yeah. and then he's like too he's too he can't call him, like too... the
1: loans yeah like fess up or yeah, do it yeah. like he's
0: he's in a pickle and he can't do it and it's again it's that kind of lack of it's that yeah there's nobody's evil no there's no morality tale which so much of the films like before and then since you know as that this really this will mm-hmm. totally exist in this kind of sweet spot like would have been perpetuating um so it's like, you know the boy your boyfriend stood you up, you're horrified, you're wondering what's going to happen. Oh, actually, your brother steps up, and then mm-hmm. your best girlfriend kind of creates some moment of justice around that for you. So it's there's no there's no consequences, and it is it's not glossy. it's it's like there are these moments of this is far from my deal or like this isn't what I wanted to happen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and I'm disappointed and I'm even crying, but ultimately as not being things that will end your life and ruin your life uh stop you from getting the things that you want Mm -hmm. which is very much the message that was being perpetuated in you know the new kind of abstinence sex ed that was that was uh started to dominate schools from from 81 onwards so Mm -hmm. there's it's very much
1: kind of stand out in that way it is and then I think as well there's something I mean so she gets with rat um who is kind of i guess like another thread when they go on this really awkward first date yeah um and you kind of see that these are like t- teenagers right they're sitting in these like giant chairs and apparently like um heckling ass production to make the chairs as big as possible so they can kind of look so out of place um it really this, works They look. So it look works so small. well yeah <laughs> um and they just keep o- ordering um cokes as well um but where is it yeah so she she ends up with rat at the end um and, you know, she's kind of, she tells Linda as well, like, you know, I want romance. I just don't want sex. Um, and it's almost kind of seen as this, like, maturity moment for her, right? Like, she doesn't want what we associate with, like, is the ultimate grown-up thing, but actually this kind of yeah. romantic thing. Um, but then, as you kind of said earlier, there's this, um, the movie ends on all these different calling cards or kind of, like, freeze frames, like, so-and-so is at college or whatever. Um, and Spicoli saves Brooke Shields, and um, Stacy's just says, like, Stacy and rat had a great like impassionate s- romance or something it's it's suggested that they're still having sex like so they're having the romance i think it they're says all that,
0: still i think it says they haven't had sex yet actually oh is it yeah i think it says Ooh. that they're they're still they're still together and they, they're still waiting
1: oh interesting okay. yeah
0: so it really does it pay attention
1: much... <laughs> <laughs> never mind then <laughs> <laughs> but it's like
0: really decoupling sex and romance actually okay okay yeah.
1: In- well well interesting <laughs> it's a bit late at night when I was watching <laughs> um okay yeah well then never mind that. but yeah so it's interesting that it kind of does like end on that um that note but she does you know she does to like get what she wants in a way um yeah yeah
0: is some there's something there about that being seen as a happy ending for her of like don't worry she stopped having random sex she's now right
1: Especially because uh, at the you know the start of the movie she's so anxious about it and so kind of yeah yeah freaking yeah. out about it and yeah uh, actually, it kind of made me think as well like the movie has an interesting relationship with so there's also uh, these these kids are all in classes together and they kind of have these like, stereotyped teachers and they're all in biology class um, and in like a crazy like I don't know if your biology class did this but mine certainly didn't they haven't the arranged yeah no so <laughs> <They, laughs> no. And I've never heard of anybody who's like, yeah, when I was in high school, we went to go look at a cadaver. So, like, the the biology teacher arranges for them to go to a hospital and see a dead body. And when they're looking at the body, they, like, open up the cavity and, like, yeah. take out the heart. And these kids are all, like, traumatized. Yeah. Spokoli's having a good time. Yeah. But it's, it's just kind of this, like, you know, this ana- the anatomy of it is just, like, very gross. And, like, it's a gross act scene yeah. as well. But I wonder if... Th- I should have thought about this more ahead of time, but no, <laughs> you know, just no, kind of like so, something, something to the like there. the anatomy, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. It's like and the sex that you do see is like it's quite awkward, and it's like, yeah. um, and also yeah, again anatomical, uh, for, shall we say, being kind of, um, you know the the speed of which uh her and Demone have sex, mm-hmm. like like these kinds of like bodies are embarrassing. Bodies are, you know, these glorified young people's bodies that as and particularly. You know uh, the the way that that's such a kind of obsession of American culture during this period, mm-hmm. and then they're like they're actually these are embarrassing bodies, and everybody ends up the same anyways, which is you know dead. So I think there's this, <laughs> sorry.
1: <laughs> you're right <laughs> It definitely a Frank reminder.
0: I also didn't think about the cadaver before in that much detail before this moment I but. had totally
1: forgotten it was a part of the movie I was you know, like chucking along and I was like yeah you know swimsuit scene like the abortion you know they're, they're dating this guy's like scalping tickets the football scene and then it was just like cadaver and I was like what the?
0: yeah Which I guess it t- ties it into that kind of like lightly into the sort of exploitation film like quite schlocky right yeah. genre but it's like cheap it's, thrills yeah. yeah yeah but you're right there I I think that's a really interesting point that it's kind of tied to the like bodily embarrassments or like body mm-hmm. or like yeah the taking the importance and significance out of bodies in American mm-hmm. culture like even that is so radical
1: yeah yeah Great read. Um, what else is there to talk about? I guess like reception, um, as we kind of talked about right at the top, uh, universal did not have much confidence in this. They didn't know how to market it. Um, Uh, There was apparently a test screening in Orange County, which went terribly. (laughs) Um, The teenagers were like, we hate this. This isn't how how we behave. Um, And they were considering recutting the whole thing. And then somebody said, no, no, they're just being dumb. Um, Not these teens. They don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) These teens don't count, but these (laughs) teens do. Um, But they did. They started with a limited release. um, And then it was, again, like, as we said, like an instant hit. And people were just going to see it tons and tons of times. um, And a limited release only in Southern California. Because I think that's kind of the the positionality of the film as well is quite apparent. Um, Yeah. They filmed at like Van Nuys High School and they shot at the, not the Glendale Galleria, the Sherman Oaks Galleria, different (laughs) Galleria. Um, (laughs) And you kind of used to see cruising down what I imagine is like the Valley Boulevard and like eating burgers, whatever. It's very like California, you know, vibes. Um, Yeah. But they release it wide and it, yeah it's a hit nationally as well and they base the kind of advertising campaign around sean penn's character specifically um and then critics are kind of more hit or miss with it i think a few are kind of like yeah it's fine um so like jack Kroll for newsweek says like it restores the kids to sorry, uh, the kids sorry <laughs> uh no quote it restores to kids their divine right to be silly fumbling creatures with their own cockeye dignity heckling's treatment of kid sex not a great term in my opinion uh sorry that's out of quote Requote. for example is really sexy friendly and funny um but other people like Roger Ebert hated it he called it like a scuzz pit movie or something he was just like yeah. not about it um but since then I think his reputation really only has grown um both I mean like, as a cult hit amongst audiences but amongst critics as well they've really come to appreciate it and like you said kind yeah. of thinking about what films we decide to kind of like put into the pantheon of uh, film with an e kind of you know <laughs> yeah. like or it, uh, my friends and I had a conversation a few weeks ago like is it a film or is it a movie
0: mm-hmm. and it's definitely being kind of cast as the former right like it's going into kind of film history more right as it were. yeah
1: yeah so like audiences if or not audiences, sorry uh listeners if you weren't aware so it recently got a criterion release and uh, the criterion collection is kind of this a uh, boutique home video release company that selects certain films to kind of get very nice repackaged editions for whether it be like, you know, it started out, I think, on Laserdisc and now, you know, we're at Blu-ray and the uh, 4K HD they pioneer things like the commentary track. You know, so if you're watching a movie with the director saying like, oh, I picked blue curtains in this film because I like the color or whatever. Um, <laughs> so, but the, and it's, and it's often seen as a marker of like, you are an important movie uh, yeah. for a lot of film nerds. So they so um, it came out last year, I believe. Uh, uh, but yeah. And then historians haven't really looked at it surprisingly. I mean, actually quite, I found out quite a few chapters um, from like cultural historians or maybe mm. people who are more um, media studies as well, but not a. Not, I mean, it's not surprising. I guess I think you know, kind of doing this podcast for a while now, you can really tell the movies that when they come out. I mean, also when this came out, it wasn't history, but sure. <laughs> like Mike have been saying throughout the entire episode, this is really like a primary source. So maybe we'll see more engagement with fast times from historians in the future as we continue to kind of come back and recontextualize the eighties. Um, but that hasn't happened yet, even though it was 40 years ago now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it is. Um, it is interesting thinking about like why we, uh, look back to certain films when we do and why we Mm -hmm. look back to certain eras when we do. And I've been thinking a lot recently about our kind of contemporary fixation with the 1980s generally, yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons, understandable reasons why um, we've kind of collectively wanted to revisit a different period of uh, political uh, polarization, of uh, global unrest, of pandemics arising. Like, there's all these reasons of, of the rise of a different right. Like, there's all these mm-hmm. reasons why we've both been depicting the 80s more in contemporary films. And... Perhaps, you know, in the case of this film, revisiting moments of, uh, you know, whether it's as, as this film has kind of like joy or freedom and, um, you know, other moments that we might want to kind of capture of where did you find that joy or release or resistance in a period mm-hmm. which felt, at least from our contemporary sitting, uh, you know, kind of similarly fraught and terrifying. And
1: yeah, uh, yeah, hopeless. Definitely. yeah. Well- Fast Times is up there. It was also put into the National Film Registry in uh, 2005, which is another yeah, kind of wow. mark of, hmm. uh, you know, acknowledgement of well done. <laughs> You're yeah. important to the culture. Um, yeah. As the Library of Congress said, arguably the finest teen comedy of recent decades. So, well, oh. huh. uh, do you have any final thoughts on Fast Times? Oh, wow. Anything you want to shout out? Any, you know, kind of mundane moments or... <laughs>
0: Uh, any mundane moments I've not picked up on I'm um, not mundane but yeah <laughs> <laughs> let me think is there anything that I haven't haven't touched on that I was that I was thinking about um, I think we I guess, uh, I think we touched on most of it I think there was some there was just like a lot of little moments one of the things that about this kind of culture of the the afterlife of the film that people sort of Mm. like would watch and rewatch, and that it's a kind of cult classic is that this this understanding that you would notice something different every time yeah because it's a subtle film not a lot happens Mm -hmm. and it's about these details and there's just I guess there's sort of certain details like the 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 girls doing what I can only presume is like the Cosmo sex quiz by the pool right also the kind of interaction with like Adult women's culture and kind of these unspoken yeah. things of like how teenagers find sex ed when there is no sex ed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the fact that you kind of can't keep things from from young people. It's like yeah, gonna, all right, cool. The information will yeah. yeah, sex ed is kind of on its way to being harder and harder to access by this point. Well they'll just steal their mother's cosmo and they'll find mm-hmm. out one way or another. I thought that was that kind of jumped out to me. Um but also um I think the parental control thing, that was one other thing I, that, that really struck me kind of connecting this to the history of the time was hmm. was how the lack of parents is, is extra rebellious because that was one of the things that was so, um, you, you see increasing amount of policy around what parents, what, dis- what reproductive decisions uh, parents are allowed to make for their children. And you start to see that becoming more restrictive over the 80s. Mm-hmm. I think there's a poignancy there too to their autonomy and their freedom without parents because that's really something that snowballs over the '80s as well. So yeah, yeah, poignant in a lot of ways. Of course, uh, it still does stand out to me that that there's these you know who the the, the kinds of sexualities that, that just were still unspeakable in the wake of the sexual revolution. You know, young people of color being seen as kind of middle-class portrayed as middle-class teenagers with sexual freedom being even kind of considered in that making or any kind of explicit queerness uh, being explored is just Mm. not something that you see. So in a way, I think Mm -hmm. it's very emblematic of what was the, what did sexual freedom look like in, in a teen movie made by liberal white adults Mm. Uh, in this moment in history and what kinds of sexualities at best could be celebrated or reproductive choices could be celebrated and mm. who's who's aren't there also. So I think there's yeah. a there's a poignancy on that level as well I think.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So I, th- I think that's yeah, just about it. We've kind of talked over the movie. Um I would like to highlight the fact that uh, Mr. Hand in his American history class seems to spend the entire year on the Spanish-American War. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, I think he goes straight into the Platt Amendment, and the first scene we kind of see him in, and he's still talking about Cuba at the end of the year. So
0: <laughs> interesting point. class. I wondered what you were going to say about the fact that of the significance of like the one one of the two classes they take is U.S. history.
1: On this U.S. Yeah. history
0: podcast, I it do was like yeah.
1: that. it was kind of like when you know he comes in he's like U.S. history was like ooh you know like what are they gonna say yeah and then yeah just Mr. Han going like what is the none of you know what the importance of the Platt Amendment is I was like okay they're moving kind of quickly <laughs> and then like a few weeks or like I think he jumps as well to like a civil war topic like a few it's just like I'm like what is happening in this history class
0: yeah it's funny <laughs> it's also I guess funny thinking about like I don't know if this is a point the film was trying to make but just that to me it's like they are. US history, I think for for me kind of wanting to mm. wanting us to think about young people as important historical figures, them being positioned as kind of like like not caring that much about US history being taught to mm-hmm. them whilst living history. Themselves. And now they are history. Yeah. Yeah. It's just
1: there's something something <laughs> yeah, about something that. there. So, yeah. significant Yeah um shout out as well to like the cast um I mean yeah. this is a lot of people's like first movies I didn't even realize it was Jennifer Jason Lee until like halfway through the movie and then I was like which one's Jennifer Jason Lee and then I was like oh it's Stacy yeah it's such um, a
0: debut for all of these now yeah. very famous actors mm-hmm.
1: yeah um Forrest Whitaker is in his yeah. first speaking role um Eric Stoltz is one of the stoners and yeah. then Nick Cage for a very brief moment <laughs> in the burger joint um yeah. not even credited as a cage yet he's still Coppola yeah pre-stage um, name yeah yeah Oh, and also, like, I don't know if they're still married, but so there's a moment where Brad has been kind of through various reasons has been demoted to being a um, working at like a Long John Silver's or some sort of equivalent and has this ridiculous outfit and has to drive in the outfit to deliver this food. And he sees a woman in the car next to him and he kind of smiles at her and she just laughs at him because he looks like the the, cat, uh, the, the pirate from Spongebob. Um, and that is... Cameron uh, nancy wife. yes nancy wilson yeah. of heart the band heart and then yeah, eventually cameron crowe's wife yep
0: yeah i thought that so. was so cool i thought that was so cool but yeah i'm not i meant to see if they were still married but i did love the cameo yeah um and again tying it back to cameron crowe's uh kind of life history and like rock and roll
1: yeah definitely yeah music in this as well i mean i kind of so I like the go-go's but it's such an eclectic kind of music choice um, I think all around and kind of ending on the Oingo Boingo song too.
0: <laughs> yeah. I heard that, that Heckerling also redid the playlist. Like cause mm-hmm. when she, when she was like given the film, she saw the script and how it had been developed from um, the book and was like, mm-hmm. Oh no, this is, this is <laughs> not cool. And uh-huh. so she went back to Crow and, and they rewrote the script together. Yeah. Um, which is what we see now. And then apparently she did the same with the soundtrack. She was like this is not what young people listen to that doesn't make sense but I think good. I think she said there was like some tracks that made it through mm. that she was like all right fine but the rest were her favorite bands and wanting yeah. wanting
1: good. to kind of yeah that's you, good you, that's I like why you. the soundtrack yeah. really works <laughs> yeah nice well I think that's just about it um I have anything else to say yeah no fast times of rich high what a, a fun movie to cover it Really um, Yeah. thank you for joining us charlie Thank you uh, so much for
0: having me. I've had the best time.
1: Yahoo. It's Yeah, it's been so much fun talking about it. Um, is there anything you'd like to plug before we say goodbye?
0: Oh, sure. Um, well, if, if this is things that you'd like to read more about and interested in, uh, my book just came out last year that you mentioned, uh, Teenage Dreams, Girlhood Sexualities in the U.S. Culture Wars, which is out with Rutgers University Press. And I also have, uh, for more on the 80s, a co-edited collection myself and uh sarah crook at swansea co-edited a book called resist organize build uh which is about uh, uh feminist and queer activism in the long 1980s in both the us and UK. and there's a, a lot of great chapters from all of our uh, all of our contributing authors in there and so yeah pick up one of those
1: all right, great, yeah. Available, if you want to. no pressure. Yeah, <laughs> if you like. available wherever you buy academic books. Um, okay, great, that's, thanks. Uh, readers, go check that out if you've enjoyed the conversation today. Um, and with that, I will say that has been our episode on Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us on Twitter at F-L-S-H-B-C-K-H-I-S-T-O pod, Flashback Histopod, and w- we will be back again soon to take another look at American history on the silver screen. Until then, goodbye.